Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, February 15th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire. And here are today's top stories. Three are killed in a Michigan State University shooting. Thousands of fish are found dead after an Ohio train derailment. Ukraine seeks warplanes from NATO. Syria agrees to open two more border crossings for earthquake aid. The Philippines accuses China of using a laser at sea. Nikki Haley announces her 2024 U.S. presidential bid. BBC offices in India are searched by tax authorities. EU lawmakers approve a ban on gas-powered cars from 2035. New Zealand declares a state of emergency over a cyclone. And the CDC finds mental health issues are rising in teens. Three people are killed at Michigan State University and the gunman is dead. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, CNN, and the Associated Press. A gunman on Monday opened fire at Michigan State University, killing three people and critically wounding five others. He fatally shot himself hours later as police confronted him following a manhunt. Police announced the death of the shooter as 43-year-old Anthony Dwayne McRae. Investigators are still determining the motive. The suspect reportedly had no known affiliation with the university. Interim Deputy Chief of the Campus Police Department, Chris Rosman, said he had no idea why the gunman had targeted the campus. This truly has been a nightmare that we are all living tonight, he said. The three fatalities and five injuries are confirmed to be University of Michigan students. The wounded students are still in critical condition. While there is no longer a perceived threat to the campus, officials have said the university will move into emergency operations for the next two days, including having an increased police presence on site. All classes, athletics, and campus-related activities have been canceled for the 48 hours following the shooting. According to data from the nonprofit group Gun Violence Archive, this was the 67th mass shooting in America this year. All right, Melissa, thanks for those tragic facts. We have some narrative spins on this story, starting with the Democratic narrative from The Washington Post. Yet another tragic and preventable mass shooting has taken place on U.S. soil and Congress is still failing to act. The American legislature has not seriously debated the problem of gun control for a decade because Republicans are continuing to stall the desperately needed legislation. While new laws cannot prevent all mass shootings, they would stop some of them. Any change, even if it isn't perfect, is worthwhile to protect innocent lives. And the Federalist brings us a Republican narrative. Bluntly imposing restrictions on legal ownership would do nothing to tackle the root causes of mass shootings, but it would threaten the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding Americans. Mass shooters either obtain their weapons illegally or legally before having a criminal record, so further restrictions on gun ownership serve no practical use in terms of prevention. Democrats may want to be seen to be doing something in response to these massacres, but autocratic and unconstitutional gun bans are not a solution. And Greater Good magazine brings us Narrative C. If lawmakers truly want to act to prevent these heinous attacks plaguing America, they must bridge partisan dichotomies to understand the political and social convictions about guns and gun violence behind each other's ideological stances. Though to liberals more guns equate to more deaths, conservatives equate gun rights with fundamental American freedom. 
Despite conflicting priorities, both sides believe in a right to safety and liberty in U.S. society. Through clearer dialogue, a route toward imposing more practical solutions to gun violence that also respects the right to responsible gun ownership is within reach. And there's a nerd narrative on this story that says there's a 50% chance that the murder rate in the U.S. will be at least 5.65 per 100,000 inhabitants in 2030. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Our next story, thousands of fish are found dead after an Ohio train derailment. Here are the facts as agreed upon by News 5 Cleveland WEWS, NBC News, CBS News, WKBN, The Washington Post, and Newsweek. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources said Monday that the train derailment and spillage of toxic chemicals in East Palestine on February 3rd has killed at least 3,500 fish, primarily small suckers, minnows, darters, and sculpin, in the Leslie Run stream. The confirmation comes days after a Norfolk Southern train carrying vinyl chloride, a colorless and highly flammable gas used to make PVC plastics, which decomposes into toxic fumes, went off the tracks and burst into flames in northeastern Ohio, stoking fears of a potential explosion. Though the fire is no longer burning and authorities have assured evacuated residents that it is safe to return to their homes, the wreckage is still being removed from the site. The Ohio Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Emergency Response confirmed an impact to Sulphur Creek and waters of the state of Ohio, but maintained there had been little to no impact on the air and water quality in the area. After the dead fish had been spotted, residents in Pennsylvania were advised to open their windows, turn on fans, and wipe down all surfaces with diluted bleach. Apart from resulting in the deaths of thousands of fish, the Ohio train derailment also fatally impacted foxes, coyotes, and wild birds. Thank you, Scott. And we'll get into some narrative spins that have emerged on this story as well. Narrative A comes from USA Today. This accident raises questions about the rail transportation of vinyl chloride and brings rail safety in general under scrutiny. It also serves as a huge wake-up call to Americans living in close proximity to rail lines about the potential risks they face. The federal government's lax regulations on and inspections of the rail industry have enabled risks to rise. Safety improvements must be made through the enforcement of proper protocols, checks, and balances. And the American Association of Railroads brings us Narrative B. Rail is the safest transport option for the movement of chemicals compared with truck travel. Rail transport experiences just 10% of the accidents that occur in truck transport, and those accidents are on the decline by as much as 33%. Nonetheless, higher investments in rail networks can improve safety performance, while investment in community relations can also help build trust between the public, railroads, and transportation safety agencies. And there's a narrative C on this story from Newsweek. The real issue here is the response to the disaster. Vinyl chloride is a serious health hazard, and authorities failed to deal with the chemical spill properly, simply covering the contaminated soil after burning without proper assessment. Vinyl chloride, however, is highly mobile in soil and risks eventually leaching into groundwater. It's not a question of if there will be a problem, but simply when it will occur and how bad it will be. You ever see that movie Unstoppable, the train movie with Denzel Washington? No. Out of control train, uh, Denzel has to save the Denzel and um, Chris Pine 
Captain Kirk has to oh. save the day. Yeah, okay, it was this a pretty is good movie. It, it, it was like, let's see, 2010. So okay. yeah, fairly recent. Yeah, for me, that's recent anyway. Right in the last ten ish years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> pretty good movie. And basically is the story of this. I think it was even in Pennsylvania, which oh, is probably right. one of the few places where there's like a bunch of rail lines still. So, yeah. Right. Well, isn't that a big Monopoly win, right? Pennsylvania uh, Avenue. Pennsylvania Railroad. Pennsylvania there Railroad. it is. And yep. then Reading Railroad is Reading, Pennsylvania. I mean, that's all, that's you know, right. that's all, all that stuff is uh Got to get that, that steel in and out, you know? That's right. That's right. Or vinyl chloride. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Jeez. And then there's also the anti-authority thing, like, oh, the authorities say this won't be a problem. Wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't sound. Yeah. That, that sounds like just what they would say. What are we doing here? Right. Um, everyone, open your windows. Yikes. Right. Just what? Well, yeah. When they say that is when I really turn my head and go, huh? You want yeah. me to open window, wipe every surface with bleach water, and then I'll be fine. I don't yeah. think so. I think I'm going to go Google vinyl chloride. <laughs> right. Coming from the same people that said, you know, drink up in Flint, Michigan or, wh- exactly. or whatever. We are at day 356 of the Ukrainian conflict. At NATO talks, Ukraine seeks warplanes and allies are concerned over ammo. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Politico, Washington Post, The Guardian, and Ukraine Forum. Ten days away from the one-year anniversary of the start of the Russian-Ukraine war last February, the Ukraine Defense Contact Group met for the ninth time at NATO's headquarters in Brussels on Tuesday. While Ukraine's Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov used the talks to press allies for fighter jets, which Western partners have so far refused, partners were reportedly more concerned with providing ammunition amid fears Ukraine is using stockpiles faster than Western countries can currently supply. Ahead of the talks, NATO's Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg told reporters, It is clear that we are in a race of logistics. Key capabilities like ammunition, fuel, and spare parts must reach Ukraine before Russia can seize the initiative on the battlefield. While U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told the meeting that allies are prepared to support Ukraine for the long haul, and reports suggested the U.S. will unveil a new arms package next week, one senior Biden official told the Washington Post that diplomats are privately warning Ukraine that long-term security assistance was not guaranteed. We will continue to try to impress upon them that we can't do anything and everything forever, the official reportedly said on the condition of anonymity. Meanwhile, as officials continued to report heavy fighting in and around the Donetsk city of Bakhmut, Ukrainian forces have reportedly blown up a bridge near the city, signaling that Ukrainian forces may be preparing a retreat. Ukrainian officials also restricted journalists' access to Bakhmut on Monday, though they have denied that they intend to withdraw. Ukrainian officials reported that one civilian was killed and three others were injured in Donetsk over the past day, while two civilians were killed and three more were injured in the Kherson region. Thanks for that rundown of the facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Al Jazeera. Supplying Ukraine with ammunition, fuel, and spare parts is currently more vital than supplying new weaponry. Delivering new equipment that would take months of training has to take the back seat to ensure that Ukraine has the supplies it needs to operate existing weapons and systems. And the establishment critical narrative is provided by anti-war. Multi-billion dollar weapons packages will make little difference in the outcome of the war. The U.S. has been meddling in Ukraine since the end of the Cold War. 
And what we're witnessing is a geopolitical Ponzi scheme to benefit those aligned with a military-industrial complex. War is a lucrative racket. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will formally pledge not to join the EU before 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Syria agrees to two more border crossings for earthquake aid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The New York Times, ABC News, Al Monitor, and Voice of America. The Syrian government has agreed to allow the opening of two additional border crossings from Turkey into opposition-held northwest Syria so that U.N. humanitarian relief can be delivered to millions of earthquake victims in the area. Two new crossing points at Bab al-Salam and al-Ray will be open for an initial period of three months. Before the agreement, the U.N. was only able to deliver aid via the Bab el-Hawa crossing between Turkey and Idlib. Last week's earthquakes killed tens of thousands of people in southern Turkey and northern Syria. Aid delivery in Syria has been complicated by continued hostilities in the area between pro-government and opposition forces. Originally, the U.N. Security Council established four approved routes in 2014, two from Turkey, one from Jordan, and one from Iraq. However, by 2021, Russia used its veto authority to limit aid delivery to only one crossing. Russian Deputy U.N. Ambassador Dmitry Polyansky defended Russia's posture toward cross-border aid by saying that the U.N. was violating Syria's sovereignty and territorial integrity by sending aid directly from Turkey to opposition-held areas instead of working with the Syrian government in Damascus. Over 4 million people were in need of aid in opposition-held regions before the earthquakes even occurred, as Syria has been in a state of civil war for the past 12 years. Thank you, Scott. Those were the facts of the story. Several narrative spins have emerged, and we'll bring you the pro-establishment narrative from Politico. Though the opening of more aid corridors is always a positive development, it should have happened far sooner. Indeed, if it were not for Russian interference, more cross-border aid deliveries could have been made before the earthquake even struck the area. Ultimately, however, the U.S. itself is not innocent either, as it has systematically failed the Syrian people at every turn. And we have an establishment-critical narrative from al Though the Western media try to blame the Syrian government and Russia for the lack of aid to opposition-held areas, it is the opposition itself that is stopping aid delivery. The West has waged a long and dirty war against Syria using its jihadist proxies, who are now preventing aid from government-held areas from entering the regions that they control. Damascus has always been willing to help its own people. This is probably uh, insensitive, but when I always think about humanitarian aid, I always think of that uh, SNL skit with Phil Hartman as Bill Clinton in the McDonald's talking about warlords intercepting the aid, but he's eating everyone's McDonald's food. Oh, he's one? eating all the French fries, right? Yeah, he just can't right. stop you know, himself. This this is uh, aid from Somalia intercepted by warlords. <laughs> right. That's right. I forgot about that sketch. I think about it every day. The Philippines accuses China of using lasers at sea. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, PBS NewsHour, The Guardian, NBC, Al Jazeera, and CNN. 
The Philippines on Monday charged a Chinese Coast Guard ship with temporarily blinding some crew members of a Philippine Coast Guard vessel with a military-grade laser in the South China Sea, describing it as a blatant violation of Philippine sovereign rights. Last week, the PRC ship allegedly also navigated dangerously close, around 450 feet or 137 meters, to block the Philippine patrol vessel BRP Malapascua from approaching 2nd Thomas Shoal, a submerged reef that has been occupied by Philippine forces. The incident reportedly took place as the Philippine ship was attempting to support a Navy mission to bring food and supplies to troops at the reef in the disputed Spratly Islands. This comes as the Philippine President Marcos has recently deepened security ties with Japan and the U.S., granting the U.S. access to additional military bases in the Philippines under a visiting forces agreement. The Philippine Coast Guard claimed that China had also prevented its ships from reaching the shoal in August 2022, when two ships from the Chinese military militia reportedly joined two Chinese Coast Guard vessels to allegedly form a blockade, and also in November 2021. China, which claims indisputable sovereignty over almost the entire South China Sea, responded on Monday that the Philippine vessel had trespassed into the waters of the Chinese Renai Reef without Beijing's permission. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have an anti-China narrative from the Inquirer. The country closest to Taiwan and the South China Sea, the Philippines, is faced with opportunities and challenges it must deal with in the face of Chinese aggression. With its relationship with the U.S. as the key, it's time for the Philippine people to come together and support a coherent foreign policy, modernize its defense forces, and defend their sovereign rights. And here's the pro-China narrative from Global Times. The PRC vessel exercised professional restraint during its on-site operations. While China has been accused of aggression, it is the Philippines that has frequently engaged in provocative behavior on the reef in the past decade seeking to undermine China's sovereign rights and regional stability. I watched Austin Powers, the original Austin Powers International Man of Mystery, like five years ago for the first time in a long time. That movie, that's funny. That's a Does good it hold movie. Up? It's like oh, a, that's good to hear. It's like a really good movie. I haven't watched the sequels. I bet you they don't hold up as well. But like, it's a good movie. And then the other thing is it's a period piece. I did Austin have a Dr. Powers Evil one. poster in my room when I was a teenager. I'm sure you did. When he tries to uh, back the golf cart out of the tunnel and it gets stuck and he has to keep... <laughs> the 17-point turn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's a good movie. Nikki Haley announces her 2024 presidential run. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, and Fox News. Ex-UN Ambassador and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley officially announced her campaign for the 2024 Republican U.S. presidential nomination on Tuesday, joining former President Donald Trump as the second declared candidate. This follows her invitations to supporters last week for a special announcement, in which she was expected to announce her candidacy at the shed at the Charleston Visitor Center in downtown Charleston, South Carolina, on February 15th. Instead, Haley posted a video announcing her bid, in which she said that it's time for a new generation of leadership. She also touted her resume as a twice-elected governor and pushed back against the idea that America's founding principles are bad. Haley's decision to run is an about-face from her previous position, having said that she would support Trump if he decided to run. 
The former president wished Haley luck and wrote on his Truth Social platform that she has to follow her heart. According to South Carolina-based social conservative leader Dave Wilson, Haley has been laying the groundwork for a presidential bid since assuming the U.N. ambassadorship, which she left in 2018. Haley, the daughter of Indian immigrants, is seen as a long shot to win the GOP nomination, consistently polling behind Trump and potential contender Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. A Reuters-Ipsos poll released Tuesday showed that 4% of Republicans currently support her. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that. We'll start this round of spins with a Republican narrative from Town Hall. While Nikki Haley has an uphill battle to secure the GOP nomination in 2024, she is an intriguing candidate with unique qualities in the prospective primary field. As a woman of color, she could also represent a diverse face for the party. Being the first female and woman of color as president would look good for the Republican Party. And the Democratic narrative comes from the Democratic National Committee. While some in the GOP will call her a refreshing change from Donald Trump, Nikki Haley has fought for the core tenets of the MAGA movement since before MAGA even existed. She supports abortion bans without exceptions for rape or incest, as well as ending Medicare and giving tax breaks to the ultra-wealthy. If she was willing to terminate the rights of thousands of her South Carolinian constituents, it's terrifying to think of what she would do on the national level. Yep. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. We'll see if it pays off for <laughs> In our next story, the BBC offices in India are searched following a Modi documentary. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, Financial Times, and Sky News. Income tax authorities have searched BBC offices in New Delhi and Mumbai just weeks after the broadcaster released a controversial documentary criticizing Indian Prime Minister and BJP leader Narendra Modi. According to BBC sources, officials questioned the BBC accounts officer working in the New Delhi office and didn't allow others to leave. Tax officials have described the operation as a credible survey operation. January saw the BBC air a two-part documentary which claimed during the religious riots in Gujarat in 2002 that Modi was directly responsible for a climate of impunity that facilitated the violence of the protests. The current prime minister served as Gujarat's chief minister at the time of the events, which resulted in the deaths of over a thousand people, mostly from the minority Muslim population. The broadcast entitled India, the Modi Question, has been blocked on social media in the country. Despite being dismissed by the government as propaganda and described by the foreign ministry as a biased piece that revealed a continuing colonial mindset, the BBC has affirmed its reporting and stated Tuesday that it was cooperating with Indian tax officials. Clashes over the documentary have escalated since its release. The Supreme Court received a petition last week from Hindu nationalists who called for a complete ban on the BBC in response to the broadcast. It was quickly thrown out by judges as absolutely meritless. Rights officials as well as opposition officials have objected to Tuesday's search as a violation of press freedom. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. This is a blatant attack on journalists who have, through rigorous investigation, exposed Modi's record of oppressive and intolerant leadership. New Delhi is sliding into authoritarianism, a regression that has been accelerated by Modi's style of governance. Tax raids are a thin cover for what government officials are truly up to. 
concealing the erosion of human rights and persecution of minorities in India. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the Indian Express. The surveys on the BBC premises are entirely warranted. Distinct from the broadcaster's recent controversial documentary, which has done irreparable damage to the sovereignty and integrity of India, as well as relations abroad and public order domestically, the offices are facing allegations of tax evasion and irregularities of international tax and financial transactions. Tax officials must be allowed to do their jobs unhindered by interference from the meddling of the international community. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 53% chance there will be a non-BJP Prime Minister of India before the year 2030. I love these narratives that are like completely regardless of the, you know, the broadcaster's recent commercial, uh, controversial documentary, which, by the way, did a lot of damage to the sovereignty of India and also <laughs> its public appearance abroad. Yeah. However, it's co- completely irrelevant. It's just a tax irregularity. Please disregard that. You can't say that in the uh, courtroom. Like, dis- you'll disregard that, jury. Right. EU lawmakers approve a ban on gas-powered cars from 2035. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC 18, The Wall Street Journal, and Le Monde. The European Parliament on Tuesday approved a law that would effectively ban the sale of new gas and diesel-powered vehicles in the EU starting in 2035. Specifically, it will require a 55% cut in CO2 emissions for new cars by 2030, compared to 2021 levels, and 100% by 2035. The formal approval comes after EU member states agreed on an outline of the bill last year, which includes a compromise that could allow the sale of vehicles running on carbon-neutral fuel. These would be the only new carbon-producing vehicles allowed after 2035. While supporters of the bill argue it will give European car makers a clear time frame to achieve zero-emission electric vehicles, Conservative members of parliament say the industry isn't ready for such a change and that it could put hundreds or thousands of jobs at risk. With final approval of the bill not expected until March, it has already faced industry resistance, resulting in concessions such as allowing small car makers producing less than 10,000 vehicles annually to negotiate weaker targets until 2036. Volkswagen, however, has already begun investing in and is prepared to sell only EVs in Europe by 2033. Several other countries, including Canada, the UK, and Norway, have approved similar target dates to ban new combustion engine vehicles. While the U.S. hasn't joined these countries, California passed similar legislation last year. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round of spins with a left narrative from Greenpeace. While any fossil fuel ban enshrined into law is better than no law at all, the 2035 rule is too late if Europe wants to abide by the Paris Agreement and actually halt climate change. In order to do so, all cars should be electric by 2028. This would not only help prevent the Earth from warming more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, but also saves Europeans hundreds of millions of euros in fuel costs. And the right narrative comes from CNBC. The EU's zero-emissions vehicle push isn't likely to lead to job cuts. It definitely will. Car manufacturers are already planning on cutting jobs across the continent to meet EV goals, with Ford recently announcing plans to eliminate 3,800 positions in Europe. Moreover, these are skilled engineering jobs, but company executives say that as they switch from combustion engines 
to EV production, these skills will become obsolete. And there's a nerd narrative on this story saying there's a 50% chance that at least 34.4% of new vehicle production will be electric in the U.S. in 2027. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. They're arguing a lot about the you know, the CO2 stuff and the environmental stuff. Isn't a lot of the reason of this is to hurt Russia and to reduce their dependence on Russian fossil fuels? Well, you know, some would say <laughs> they might go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't think that I don't think this is a debate about CO2. I think this is something else. But who knows? Maybe. maybe I mean, yeah, it, it, I mean, it sure is murky. I mean, we are very behind on the Paris Agreement because uh, we've been distracted, um, you know, as a human species. Well, TikTok is just so fun. You know, I can't be I can't worry about it. Can't fault you there. Once. Yeah. <laughs> New Zealand declares a rare emergency for a cyclone. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Le Monde, Al Jazeera, Sky News, Fox Weather, CNN, and Reuters. New Zealand declared a state of emergency for just the third time in its history on Tuesday as Cyclone Gabrielle destroyed roads, flooded homes, and left more than 100,000 people without electricity. Rising waters stranded people on rooftops, roads were submerged by floodwaters, and houses were swept away by landslides. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins told reporters it has been a big night for New Zealanders across the country, but particularly in the Upper North Island. A lot of families displaced, a lot of homes without power, extensive damage done across the country. Parts of the North Island have been completely cut off due to damaged roads and flooding, with the military supporting evacuations and delivering supplies in the worst affected areas. So far, about 2,500 people have been displaced and another 225,000 people are without electricity. New Zealand's Minister for Emergency Management called the event unprecedented for the North Island. Auckland Airport canceled all domestic flights for the rest of Tuesday because of the strong winds. The New Zealand Meteorological Service recorded wind gusts of over 87 miles per hour, or 140 kilometers per hour, and waves reaching 36 feet high, or 11 meters, along the coast, while other regions, including Wellington, will receive additional rainfall of up to 150 millimeters through Thursday. New Zealand has declared national-scale emergencies only twice before, once after a 2011 earthquake and again for COVID in 2020. We have a narrative A from The Guardian. Cyclone Gabrielle is the most significant weather event New Zealand has seen in a century. Cyclones and other extreme climate-catalyzed weather disasters will ultimately change how nations like New Zealand build safe and sustainable communities. New Zealand has made many mistakes regarding sustainable planning in the past, and it's time to confront a new normal. And here's narrative B from The Financial Times. It's easy to dismiss any extreme weather event as a consequence of climate change, but in reality, they're usually influenced by a myriad of factors that have nothing to do with it. More research is needed before we can establish any direct causal link between the two. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus that says that there's a 50% chance that the total damage incurred by climate change during the 21st century will be at least 8.84% of world GDP. I, my house got flooded one time. Um, oh, yeah. I saw the pictures. Yeah. And one thing I appreciate about a flood is that there's nothing you can do about it during the flood. So 
you just kind of have to ride it out, you know, whereas like in a snowstorm or something, well, you really should be shoveling. You really should be staying on top of this. Like you can't really do anything until the waters recede. So I appreciate that as a lazy person in a crisis. <laughs> I appreciate that. That would give a lot of people anxiety. You know, it's like, well, at least I can shovel. Yeah. No, not me. I'm just going to sit in my tube. Just watch a little waterfall action. Yeah. Enjoy yeah. It's nature. a water. It's I, I, I consider it a water feature. Our final story, the CDC reports that mental health issues are rising in teens, especially girls. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, NPR Online News, ABC News, and USA Today. A new report released by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on Monday details increased levels of violence, sadness, and suicidal thoughts among teenagers, especially girls, over the past 10 years. According to the data, 57% of high school girls felt persistently sad or hopeless in 2021, almost 60% more than in 2011. In addition, 30% of girls seriously considered attempting suicide, 18% experienced sexual violence in the past year, and 14% reported having been forced to have sex. The annual Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which polls U.S. high school students on health and behaviors, provided the CDC with the data, which also showed 29% of boys feeling persistently sad or hopeless, up from 21% in 2011. The report also found that 52% of LGBTQ plus youth experienced poor mental health, including 20% saying they had attempted suicide in the past year. 22% of LGBTQ plus youth also reported facing sexual violence. In terms of race, suicidal ideation was up among black, Hispanic, and white students. Although the report presented troubling trends, several areas of teen health, including a decrease in risky sexual behavior and alcohol use, saw improvement over the past decade. All right, Scott, thank you for the facts on that final story. Narrative A comes from Fox News. This shocking report is the latest sign we have to wean our children off of social media. Teenage use of social media has increased toxicity and further isolated teens after the pandemic increased their loneliness. It's up to parents, schools, and all adults to lessen or at least better monitor teenagers' social media activity. And PJ Media brings us Narrative B. Social media can have a negative influence, but we shouldn't let schools, which should have better mental health and sex education programs, off the hook. It's also important to make sure teens are allowed to grow up while free from the control and expectations of overbearing adults. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, February 15th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.